Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Newman, a host on this channel. Today we'll be speaking with Dr. Cristina Jimenez about her book, Making an Urban Public, Popular Claims to the City in Mexico, 1879-1932. to The book was published by the University of Pittsburgh Press in 2019. Dr. Jimenez is Professor of History and Chair um, of the Department of History at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Christina, welcome to the program. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Could you begin by sharing something about your trajectory as a scholar and how you came to this topic? Sure. Um, Well, so I'm a Mexican-American, and I grew up in San Jose, California, and as, uh, you know, young person. We traveled uh, with my family to different parts of Mexico, visiting family and exploring the country. And this was in the 80s when, of course, Mexico was going through its democratic opening, lots of politics and uh, political activism going on through the 80s and 90s. And as I entered graduate school many years later, um, I was just surprised at kind of how how few studies there were that really looked at issues of civic activism in Mexico historically. Um, so I'm an urban historian, and I started with my kind of interest in urban history and and uh, kind of city life and um, changes that happen in cities as as not only the built environment changes, but as people move in and out. And there's such a rich historiography um, of European cities and of uh, U.S. cities. But, you know, we didn't really have much in terms of uh, Mexican cities, particularly beyond Mexico City. So, uh, when I had the opportunity to start thinking about a dissertation project, I, um, of course, went went hunting for some good archives. And um, I found just incredibly rich uh, documents in several municipal archives that I visited. Um, I think as a grad student, I scouted out uh, Guanajuato and Puebla and Um, uh, of course, Morelia, where I decided to focus the study. Um, But, you know, these, uh, the the archives, the municipal level archives, um, you know, this is in the late 1990s, were so underused. And I um, just thought that I could write a great city-centered kind of popular activism type history from the from the documents that I found. So that's both the kind of personal and professional uh, background on, you know, making an urban public. Thanks so much. Yeah, those do tend to intersect. 
Um, so before we get into the context and um, some of the details of this book, could you mention some of the big ideas that you'd like readers to take away from this work? Sure. So I, I started talking about a few of them. Certainly, um, I I wanted to write a history of, uh, you know, political activism from the grassroots. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, the, the sources in the archive were um, actually quite surprising to me when I uh, first started re- researching this, this book years ago and um, just how many different types of people were writing letters and petitions to the municipal government of Morelia um, was striking to me. I mean, these, these are, you know, street vendors and um, fountain cleaners and um, people who wanted to, you know, uh, get permission to uh, have a little uh, public uh, stage in the main plaza to to perform their songs. I mean, it was um, it was striking just the uh, variety of sources, and so um, I started really thinking about how um, these people were engaging individually. Of course, of course, there was lots of collective petitions as well. That's something I write a lot about in the book. Um, but this whole practice of petitioning was something that I had always associated more with the um, colonial history of Mexico and Latin America. And certainly we we have this very common narrative of um, indigenous communities and uh, even peasant communities, rural communities petitioning the um, Spanish authorities. And then, of, of course, this narrative reemerges in terms of petitions um, uh, in the revolutionary period and post-revolutionary period. But, you know, I, I didn't realize how extensive this practice was in um, the cities. Uh, and I do know now that there was petitioning going on, not just in Morelia, but in many cities throughout uh, Mexico. I, um, I've i spent the last few years working in uh, the municipal and state archives in Guadalajara. And um, this is certainly a similar type of um, uh, resource base that we see there, all these petitioning, popular petitions. So the point is, is that um, I really started thinking about making this large argument of how this is the emergence of an urban public. And what's really coming together during the late 19th century and early 20th century in Mexico is not only political changes, but just the investment in different infrastructure and technologies, which are changing the physical spaces of the of the city, um, they're changing the experience of people in terms of, um, you know, sanitation and uh, sewage management. Um, we have all sorts of technological changes. Everything, of course, from the railroad to the car, automobile to photography to uh, different type of uh, glass that can be installed and windows and lighting, um, electrical lighting. Um, and it was clear to me that the politics happening in the urban uh, center, you know, these were people making claims, not just on their basic needs, but claims to this whole promise of the city 
a kind of a, a, the promise of a, you know, modern life. And um, so that's one of my, that's one of my big claims, the way that petitioning becomes a vehicle in which popular groups are um, not only um, advocating for their own needs, but really demanding uh, participation in what I call kind of the promises of the modern city. Um, everything from access to co- consumer culture and popular culture to, uh, you know, a efficient and sanitary uh, built environment. Um, and I think the last piece would be uh, just accountable government and uh, just policing practices. Um, so that's at least one, one big argument. Wonderful. So you've you've touched on some of this already, but can you sort of situate our listeners in time and space for the period that you cover in the book? What's happening in this era in Mexico and in Morelia more specifically in terms of politics or um, structural changes? Oh, sure. So the period that I really cover is... Uh, Oh, 1879 through the early 1930s. And um, this is uh, the period of Mexican his- history that we typically associate with uh, the Restored Republic of Benito Juarez, but more specifically than it leads into the Porfiriato, the reign of uh, President Porfirio Diaz. And then, um, of course, the... Um, outbreak of the Mexican Revolution uh, in 1910 and the resolution of uh, kind of a form of governance under different um, revolutionary ideals and factions um, in the late 19-teens and 20s. So um, Mexico is going through just extraordinary political change at this moment. Um, But as I mentioned, there's there's also a very important um, social and cultural changes happening. Um, something that I think is often overlooked by historians is um, how really the triumph of kind of liberal ideals in the, the 1870s and 1880s um, leads to the transfer of um, just a huge portion of church properties to um, you know, the consolidated uh, Mexican state. And these properties in cities like Morelia, um, you know, these these constitute, um, we're talking about convents and monasteries and uh, parish grounds and cemeteries. Um, these kind of ecclesiastical spaces and buildings and institutions um, are... Uh, often just taken over by the municipal and state government. Um, And they actually provide the physical space for the establishment of, um, you know, many of the institutions that we associate with like a modern state. So uh, a liberal modern state, I should say, things like, um, uh, you know, national preparatory uh, schools, uh, medical academies, libraries, uh, indoor market spaces. Um, so that is, that's a, a historical transformation that's kind of undergirding 
um, at least what I see in Morelia, is all of these social and political um, transformations as well. So, um, yeah, it's a time of of lots of flux happening. I mean, um, during the revolution, I should say, Morelia is kind of a a little bit of an eye of calm within a storm. Um, the city is is occupied fairly early um, by the um, Zapatistas, the Army of the South, and uh, is peacefully kind of taken, and the, then the constitutionalists come in. So there's not, while there is fighting around the city, there's not a lot of violence that happens within the city itself. Um, so, yeah, it's it's uh, then in the 1920s, um, Morelia is very much at the forefront of uh, many revolutionary changes, um, largely because Lázaro Cárdenas is the governor of Michoacán before he becomes president of Mexico, you know, uh, over a decade later. Um, but uh, this is not something I cover a lot in my book, but certainly um, someone could write some great books on it. Uh, many of the, the policies that Gardenis is kind of uh, explores at the national level, he kind of pilots at the, the state level in Michoacan in the 20s. So I don't know if that's as concise an answer as your, your listeners need, but hopefully that provides them some context. I, thank you. I think you've really set the scene for us very well. Um, we've talked a little bit about the sources that you used, but could you tell us a little bit more about the flavor of these petitions that you read and, and how we can use petitions as a window into political culture? Oh, sure. Um, I mean, the petitions are so much fun to read and to work with because you really see um, kind of different, uh, well, it's a combination of things. On the one hand, there are uh, a form. It's a, a form that has a long, as I mentioned, has a long history in Mexico. Um, it's certainly a rhetorical device. Uh, so the the petitions are, you know, using certain kind of honorifics to address the, you know, honorable municipal council. And they're often positioning, um, the voice of the petition is posi- pos- positioning itself in a way to um, both recognize the authority of the um, kind of governmental unit they're they're um, writing to, uh, whether it's the state government or municipal government or you know a certain commission like the head of markets, for example. Um, but at the same time, they're using the petition as a platform to kind of speak to their rights as an urban. Uh, inhabitant as a um, Mexican citizen, which is a word that becomes more used in the 19-teens and 1920s. Um, But the petitions give lots of information about the struggles of people everyday lives. So, uh, you know, if it's a neighborhood seeking to improve the health conditions, you know, of their of their um, blocks, um, they might be writing and describing um, often in detail where there are, uh, you know, um, 
kind of quote unquote offending neighbors, you know, dumping their garbage or their sewage in a way that's threatening to the whole community um, and therefore asking the intervention of the municipal government to both enforce regulations as well as provide a corrective to the situation. Um, there, We get lots of just information also about personal disputes that are happening um, between, for example, uh, you know, women and men selling in the market and, and competing not only for um, you know, the best location within the market, but also competing for customers and the way that they um, make accusations or claims about their own and the other's reputation or lack of reputation uh, in some cases. So the petitions are, um, I mean, while, while it is kind of, you know, part of the political culture that I'm really getting at, they're a very rich source of information. Um, and I should say that uh, many of the petitions were likely written with the help of a scribe, a public scribe, or in the case of collective petitions, it could be maybe a, a group of, um, you know, educated, literate neighbors that are writing a collective petition on behalf of a whole neighborhood um, with, I mean, there are petitions with hundreds of signatures. Um, sometimes it's not a signature, it is a thumbprint. So um, while we certainly, you know, accept the petitions as expressing um, kind of the the voice and the ideas of popular groups, it's often, you know, been filtered in certain ways. Um, I think more than anything, um, in terms of this rhetorical form that we see uh, repeated. Uh, so in addition to the petitions, I mean, I used everything from city council minutes to, um, you know, reports from uh, the different municipal commissions. There was also kind of a lot of state level documents. Um, you know, bureaucracies generate lots of paperwork, which is while it, while it's uh uh, can be tedious, and we have to kind of read between the lines. It, it's it's also wonderful um, in terms of creating the the paper archive. So yeah, I, I use newspapers as well. Those were pretty rich. Um, yeah. So did I answer your question? Absolutely. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit more about ideas about citizenship and this notion of the vecino or neighbor and how those work in the era you're writing about? Oh, sure. Okay. So, um, so vecino identity, vecino literally translates as uh, neighbor. And um, the concept of vecino is, is actually uh, brought to Mexico with uh, the, the Spaniards. And um, there is a long history of, of vecindad within Spain and, and, uh, some some very good historical works that address that in Iberia. Um, you know, what's interesting is Vecino is one of these ideas where um, we see cognates of it in many uh, areas of the world. So um, it would be similar to like a burger um, in kind of, um, you know, hist historically in, in the German uh, region. And 
It's where someone has a claim to um, group membership, and this is often of um, a city. Uh, so in the Arab city-state, someone would be a vecino of the city um, and have that kind of um, um, loyalty and identification with the city, often uh, preceding their identification with like a nation-state, right? Uh, and it, it mirrors in Mexico the idea of a patria chica, um, a, a local homeland. Um, but vecino really invokes this idea of uh, uh, duties and responsibilities, rights, responsibilities, and duties of uh, vecinos. And, of course, that's a precursor to the rights and responsibilities of citizenship that we see articulated in, in constitutions, um, uh, not just in Mexico, but around the world. So it's kind of a proto citizenship, um, concept. And it's certainly something that in Morelia, um, people were very conscious of the ways that through, um, different municipal codes and regulations, they had obligations as vecinos or as residents of the city. And um, the municipal government made them aware of those obligations, everything from, you know, sweeping down their uh, uh, front door stoops uh, every morning um, to, you know, ensuring that they, you know, protected public order when necessary, et cetera. Um, Vecinos would use this uh, kind of performing of their rights as a way to um, also ensure that the municipal government was performing their rights and responsibilities vis-a-vis -vis the urban public. Um, so I, I really see this, um, this use of vecino identity as just a key bridge to um, the types of kind of rights and demands and negotiations that we often associate with citizenship. Um, but this is happening in an earlier period uh, in the you know, 19th century when many Mexicans are not citizens. Um, they're just Mexican nationals. So there's, there's uh, the 1857 constitution and then um, again, the 1917 Constitution both distinguish between Mexican citizens and Mexican nationals. Um, so uh, that, um, yeah, that's an important distinction there. I think that's a great bridge into the next question I wanted to pose to you. Um, so we are learning through your book about all the different ways that popular actors uh, politic, as you say. Um, but can you explain to us a little bit more about how urban politics in this era um, actively excluded or repressed popular participation? I know you have a couple chapters about that. Um, sure. Right. So uh, while, while I am writing about the making of an urban public and uh, trying to highlight the activism of uh, local community members, the reality is, is that this is the perfidiato and the, the hierarchies um, in terms of race, class, gender, 
um, uh, social origin. I mean, those are all very much intact. And while, um, you know, liberalism kind of calls for a general kind of, you know, whitewashing of racial categories, if you will, and, and there is actually a reduction in the use of um, any kind of racialized identifying language in many of the government documents. Um, what what takes its place, though, is an emphasis on behavior and reputation um, and one's conduct. So what we find is that conduct and reputation become a code for kind of enforcing um, and reifying a hierarchy of race and a hierarchy of kind of social and cultural practices where um, city dwellers who are from rural or indigenous backgrounds um, find themselves um, the targets of civilizing campaigns, sanitation campaigns um, to either reform and or repress um, their kind of presence in the city. So it's um, it's particularly important for, uh, I think, those uh, the voice of those um, city inhabitants to also, uh, you know, be present in this because they they don't have as much leverage as other members of the urban community, but they still are trying to participate and trying to show how they are contributing members of the urban public as well. Um, and maybe, you know, kind of counter some of this repressive, exclusive uh, um, kind of dynamic, um, you know, the degree to which they're successful at that really does vary because we do see the continued kind of repression and abuse um, uh, in particular kind of sets of documents, um, particularly of, of poor recent migrants to the city. Okay, so um, another one of your chapters uh, is called The Spectacular City. All of the chapters have um, these very evocative titles like that. But could you tell us a little bit more what you mean by that phrase and tell us about that facet of the city? Oh, sure. So, um, yeah, The Spectacular City. I I had this chapter um, uh, initially divided into two. One spoke about popular culture in the city and the other spoke about um, uh, consumer, consumer culture and consumer rights. And uh, really what I came to is that the, the expansion of, of both kind of different forms of like leisure culture, entertainment, um, as well as um, just expansion of all sorts of buying and selling of um, of goods, both in stores and shops, but also on the streets. We get a real kind of um, e expansion of uh, vending culture um, in this period. Uh, so this is all about spectacle. It's about spectacle of people not only enjoying and getting out and seeing things in the city, um, but also being able to uh, perform their own identities in different ways. So, you know, I mentioned, 
I was talking earlier about the changes in the physical space of the city and, um, you know, implications I've had for, for the state. But the reality is that um, these, these physical changes also provided residents with opportunities to then, you know, access public spaces, uh, parks and sidewalks and promenades, um, you know, not only as sellers, for example, um, but just as, as members of, um, as members of the city, they could, so sidewalks become so important because, um, people can actually step out of their houses and neighborhoods and walk down to their, um, the church or the, the main plaza without getting their feet totally muddied in both dirt and sewage in the streets. Um, so sidewalks are one of the first kind of early requests we see from uh, neighborhoods. Um, certainly central plazas as well allowed people like a space to just interact. And these spaces also become the spaces for um, the the spectacular city. So, uh, you know, everything from sitting in an outdoor cafe uh, uh, to, um, you know, maybe for a, a person of a, you know, the working class, they could, um, uh, you know, pay a few cents and watch a, uh, a puppet show in the public plaza. Um, there's all sorts of also theater groups that are traveling and just international acts that are coming through Mexico. So, um, you know, circuses, are just flourishing across, um, you know, um, the U S and, and Mexico. And, um, you know, we get, we, we get these international acts where on their posters are advertising. You can see the same act as, you know, the queen of England. Um, and you can see the same, you know, theater show as, as performed in the top theaters across Europe. So, um, this spectacular city is inviting people in not only to kind of be entertained, but then to kind of claim that they're having similar experiences as, you know, the elite of Europe. Um, and this is making them, I think, more aware of um, just their own kind of positionality within, uh, you know, a uh, you know, global kind of notions of uh, maybe middle class, bourgeois, elite um, aspirations. Uh, so it's, yeah, that's the spectacular city. So um, in another one of your chapters, um, you talk a lot about this idea of reputation. And I wondered if you could explain more about what that means in your work and how it's connected to ideas about the public good. Oh, yes. Thank you for that. I have not really talked about the public good yet. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's another kind of uh, overarching theme that I explore, um, which is how vecinos and citizens and urban residents are kind of um, using this notion of of the public good as kind of an exterior, uh, an external, I should say, um, aspiration for both themselves, but also for other forms of government and 
representatives of government, particularly the police, who um, are not always acting in public good. Um, so reputation becomes a way in which, uh, or becomes in many ways kind of connected to this idea of are you acting uh, in support of a more generalized public good or not. Um, and yeah, people in their petitions are seeking to not only um, demonstrate their own good reputation, and this connects this notions of kind of good conduct, quote unquote, replacing kind of racial cultural type um, identifications. Um, they're trying to demonstrate their good conduct and their contributions to to the city, to the public good, to the urban urban public um, by showing how they're participating in the city as a you know modern conscientious kind of hygienic citizen um, and you know while of course the way it's depicted in the petitions we know that that some of this is kind of performative right they might be talking it up for their their audience um, it's also clear that some of these, uh, many of these concepts were really important to people, especially um, when they are criticizing um, their neighbors and those living close by to uh, talking about how they aren't conserving the public good. Rather, they're threatening the public good. And this is usually in the form of concerns about um, just sanitation of different households. Um, it could also be um, kind of environmental concerns around maybe a really smoky chimney or, uh, you know, a, a leaky water pipe that's then flooding someone else's home nearby. Um, there are many moral concerns as well. If uh, someone kind of of ill repute, quote unquote, is um, is living on their street, this would be a woman um, you know, making her living in uh, the sex trade, she would um, could become a target for um, other neighbors. But reputation becomes kind of a a whole um, form of talking about all of these um, different issues and expectations and conflicts, really. So, uh, you know, I I wanted to highlight in each of the chapter titles um, kind of themes and topics that that I thought were a way to to kind of cross cut sometimes the way we we tend to talk about you know um, moral reputation or hygienic reputation um, and so I just called it the reputable city um so, uh, I wondered um, if you could describe for the listeners some of the networks, associations, and other collectivities that develop in Morelia after the revolution. Oh, sure. So, um, my uh, the the last chapter is called um, the Network City, and the Network City is is talking about a few dynamics, which um, I 
really saw in the documents, and I know other historians have written on this in in um, other cities and spaces, but usually not looking at kind of a, a broad range of everything from group associations and, you know, um, middle class um, clubs, political clubs, to uh, the ways that people are organized collectively um, based on, you know, shared spaces. So everything from all the sellers in a market coming together to petition collect collectively and use that network to their advantage or neighbors from many city blocks coming together to talk about the needs of their particular um, quadrant of the city um, and using that network um, as a way to really forward their, their agendas. Um, so it is about collective activism, but it's not just activism that that I'm I'm getting at here because the other type of networks that I look at are um, municipal registries, and this is actually going to be a theme that I'm exploring in in my current book project. Um, munis- the municipality required all sorts of uh, service workers to register in uh, municipal registry books. So if you were a person of um, kind of poor working class um, circumstances and you wanted to, um, you know, make a living selling just your labor, your services in the city. Um, one option that you have would, would be to to try to get a registration, for example, as a shoe shiner or to get a license to be a porter or to get a license to be a water carrier. Um, And while there certainly were um, unlicensed, unregistered water carriers and porters, uh, becoming part of this network, actually, um, we, you know, we learned that it's, it's very important to people. It's very important to people because these workers have access to each other and, um, their networks within the municipal registry. I mean, they're kind of called together for the municipality to, you know, issue uh, new regulations, right, for shoe shiners, um, and it gives them kind of an official relationship with the city government. Um, it also gives them a relationship with each other, and, um, you know, I argue that these municipal registries and this networking that's happening under the guise of real just regulation um, impulses of the city council, um, these become platforms for the formation of unions, um, particularly in the 1920s. So in the 20s in Morelia, we see just many, many different occupations becoming unionized. Um, And of course, this fits with the period when the, the uh, constitutionalists and then, you know, other revolutionary governments through the 20s are really pushing uh, workers to uh, unionize and then become part of um, state-connected confederations. Um, first the CROM, then, of course, eventually the CTM. But in Michoacan, um, the, the federation or confederation of workers that becomes most important is 
the CRMDT, and this is the Regional uh, Michoacan Confederation of Workers. And um, so here I'm using the idea of networked to not only talk about associations and municipal registrations and collective petitions, but also ultimately the emergence of unions and the ways in which that these working classes become networked to um, the uh, kind of state federal uh, network. So we've been talking some about the 1920s, what happens after the Mexican Revolution, but um, also about the, the generation prior to the revolution. Could you say sort of what your take is on how, kind of how important the Mexican Revolution is as a political watershed? Oh, sure. Um, so, I mean, the Mexican Revolution is just a transformative um, event for um, for Mexicans. And in Morelia, we see this played out in interesting ways because um, I mentioned before, in terms of fighting and violence, the city itself is... Um, uh, kind of a calm eye in midst of a, a storm, right? But but really, there are so many um, political transformations happening. Um, one of my big claims of the book, though, is that these political and social transformations aren't just coming out of the revolution as new dynamics. Rather, these are old dynamics. These are dynamics that we see in the second half of the 19th century. And in particular, this idea of collective organizing, um, the idea of grassroots politicking and petitioning. Um, so many of the things that I've you know, mentioned through the interview, we can, um, well, in my work, I'm really tracing um, kind of early versions of this in the 19th century, in the Profiliato, before the revolution. And yes, they become transformed in certain ways during the revolution, but they don't, they're not created by the revolution, these popular political dynamics. Um, so I think, if anything, what the revolutionary, the, the revolution, revolutionary movement and era does is um, it prioritizes notions of public good, particularly around the promise of the revolution to all Mexican people, um, and of course rooted in um, more revolutionary rhetoric around social justice. So um, while we can, you know, see people trying to get access to a more just life in the 19th century, the the kind of concept of social justice um, um, is is something that that's articulated by many branches of the the Mexican Revolution. Um, ultimately, through the twenties and thirties, at least in my work, I'm looking at how we also see the emergence of um, a highly bureaucratized um, state uh, that's reliant on all sorts of um, vertically integrated institutions. And so this is where, again, the idea of 
of uh, networked workers, um, yes, they're able to network and unionize and make specific demands to the state as a group, but they're also becoming networked and connected and, and in many ways beholden to um, state uh, institutions uh, and, of course, then other entities like these uh, labor confederations, which can be constraining um, in terms of how hard they're going to push issues of social justice in particular, or state accountability, or workers' rights. So um, I kind of leave a lot of uh, questions at the end in terms of exactly what's going to happen, because I I saw these connections and I I really wanted to to, um, kind of articulate some of these ideas, but we just need we need other historians to to follow up and see how um, these linkages between you know worker movements, unions, confederations, and then the kind of post-revolutionary state structure um, uh, end up playing out. Christina, thank you so much for walking through your book with us. Um, and since you did hint to it before, I would like to ask you about the project you're working on these days, just before we wrap up. Oh, sure. I am. I'm working on a, a history of, um, I call it the city of ambulantes. And that's the city of kind of itinerant uh, workers, if you will, uh, in Guadalajara, Mexico. And like Morelia, Guadalajara is the uh, state capital of of Jalisco. Um, in that sense, it it has a also very interesting overlay of the municipal and state government both in the same um, city. Uh, so, what's happening is that uh, it's it's is covering the similar period, um, kind of eighteen eighties through the nineteen forties. Um, but I'm really looking at uh, as I was talking about before, the use of um, of municipal registries by the the municipal government to kind of try to get a sense of how many people are in the street selling, what they're doing. Um, but the flip side of that is just so revealing about just hundreds and thousands of people are um, – you know, working in the streets and um, the space of the street um, becomes such an important space, I think, for not only people surviving in the city, um, but also just them really making claims to these public spaces in um, uh, ways, of course, that we see still um, at play in Mexico with um, contestations over public space with vendors. Um uh, I'm tracing it back to the 19th century again because I uh, see it as really a, a, an early informal economy, if you will. And um, part of my kind of question is, well, how informal is it if it's being regulated by the city? Um, and to what extent do we have all sorts of additional sellers that aren't being registered um, kind of you know, added on to this whole new, um, you know, urban economy. So 
Yeah, I, let me see. What I'm looking at newspaper sellers and itinerant bakery goods sellers and shoe shiners and uh, cocheros, which are like parking attendants, um, certainly vendors, uh, water carriers, which become phased out more and more with uh, pipe water. And uh, um, I think I said porters. So I'm excited about it. It's it's still in early stages, um, but I have I have completed I would say probably about 70 70 percent of the research. So I just need to to figure out exactly what I how I want to write it up. It sounds absolutely fascinating with a great cast of characters, just like this book. So we look forward to reading that. Thank you so much for your time, Christina. Thank you, Rachel. I really appreciate it. <laughs> 